If you allow the news to get to you, now it does me if I look at it too much. My blood pressure goes up. I want to bring judgment and call fire down from heaven. But uh, I cannot... I cannot tune in on that too much. Now, we have to be here, a part of it in a sense, because we're in this world. But we are the people with the answer. We're not a part of the problem, except the church needs revival. Is that right? A a move of the presence of God. So, in Job 21 and 5... He said, what is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto Him? I just want to title this, When We Pray. Would you you one more time pray with me this morning? Father, I confess, and I want to take the... the moment to confess that I have no talent nor any ability to say or do anything that affects people. And I look to you as my source. I look to you today for fresh oil, fresh anointing, and anoint the people to hear and to receive the word. And I'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's never been a uh, let me back up just a moment. I know many of you have heard me talk about my experience there close to my home where we lived a few years ago about how the Lord, I believe, said to me he was offended at the way that we pray and emphasize on the word revival and about revival when actually Second Chronicles 7, the 7th chapter and the 14th verse, the emphasis is on his seeking his face and seeing and experiencing the presence of God. But then out of that, we know that revival comes. And dear God, if there's ever been a time in our history and the world's history that we need a divine visitation, it is right now. But there's never been a true revival without genuine, travailing, intercessory prayer. I believe that history will confirm that God has not changed and there's some key elements or factors or spiritual laws that have to be obeyed for, for the heavens to open and anything contrary to that will be nothing more than a display of the flesh and God knows I've seen all the flesh I want to see in the charismatic Pentecostal movement in this day. You know, I I recognize and I believe that that's what we must do is that there has to be, there must be, there will be a visitation from God in this closing hour. Because if we're not tired of the status quo or the the spiritual death, then we'll never be stirred, we'll never be moved, we'll never be broken to seek the face and the presence of God. And Isaiah said in 64 and 6, There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. you you got to recognize the need. You know, this, um, this law that they're trying to get 
the veto over. If that's not a need, I don't know what is to see a day when that the people of our nation so openly worship the ancient God Molech with the sacrifice of their children. There has to be somehow a people that, you know, instead of saying we're sheltered in this beautiful sanctuary and we come together to worship the Lord and we're for a time we're, we're away from that. But no, we live in that every day. And the darkness again is, is getting uh, more intense. And there, we have to be tired of this. There, in Isaiah 6, it is believed that Isaiah became weary and tired of just hearing the stories about what happened yesteryear and in the past. You know, I, I, I'm going to reminisce in some ways, or let me say this, visit history today somewhat, but he didn't just get tired of the stories of yesteryear. They stirred him that he decided one day that he's going to seek God for himself. And, and uh, you know, he's on his way up to the temple, and I don't know that this happened, but it could have, so Someone says, where are you going, prophet of God? I'm going to the temple. It's not a high day. It's not a feast day. But but wh- what are you going for? I'm going to see God for myself. I'm going to seek the presence of God. I, I've heard about all of these wonderful testimonies of the past. and But I'm going to seek a new, deep, personal encounter with Him for myself. Nehemiah in his day when he received the news about the Old Testament church, it crushed him and they told him in chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, and they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall, the church to Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates are, are, are burned with fire. And Nehemiah said, when I heard that, when, when I heard about the condition of Jerusalem, about the condition of my church, he said, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know, you, you get used to worshiping the Lord and hearing the word of God preached and uh, being fed the word and an atmosphere but I'm going to tell you much of the of the church, much of Pentecost, much of the charismatic movement in this nation, that it is not the same. There is not a real manifestation of the power of God, and there are not open heavens, and the Word of God is, uh, uh, you know, some of that, uh, it, a lot of it is heresy, to be honest with you, and feel good, and a, a self-help type preaching, and and. If what we need to be stirred about this morning is the condition of what we call the church in this country. And, I, and, and, and Nehemiah said, when I heard about the condition of my church, the condition of ministry, the condition of the church, he said, my heart was broken. You see, when men and women see the need, it, it, it does break them. The sin, the, the worldly condition of the church, when they see the lost souls of men without salt and without light, when, when, when they see the, the hearts 
you know, as far as the manifestation of that heart, when they see that, you see, God will not hear any other prayer than the prayer of the humble and the contrite. We live in a time when the boasting that goes forth out of many churches in this hour, we talk about walking on the devil and trampling under our feet. I've got news for you folks. You can look out into this world. You can look out over Baton Rouge, the city uh, today. It is not under your feet. or The devil is not under our feet. He's alive and well and he's moving against humanity and he's made inroads in the modern church. He will not hear our prayer until we humble ourselves and pray. You can name and claim revival to the cows come home. You can come boldly like some of these tele evangelists and command God to send revival. Have you ever have you ever witnessed that? God, I command you. Who are you to command God? Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Amen. He, you can tell him how holy you are, you won't touch him. You can tell him what you've given up, you will not move him. But he said, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. He said, Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. That broken spirit, the Hebrew Shabar, it means to shiver and to break in pieces, to reduce to splinters. That word broken, contrite, it means daka, to crumble, to beat to pieces, to, bru- to bruise and to crush. I want to tell you that's why I see so many, I'm certain, in ministry today being broken and crushed and bruised and reduced to splinters. And I'm, I'm dealing with that now with very close friends. And no one seems to understand when people have been faithful and they love the Lord. But when the Lord begins to bruise us and crush us and humble us, that we're, we're, we're trying to find out what we've done wrong and where we fail. Well, we're always failing in, in one sense or the other, if you will. But, but God is breaking his people in this hour. You may not fully understand the trials and the tests that we face, but he is doing that. You remember hearing the stories of the great Welsh revival with Evan Roberts when he said, God, I want you to bend me, B-E-N-D, bend me. And I've heard many different versions of about what I'm about to say right now, and so I'm going to give you my version of it. It's pretty, the gist of them all are about the same, but it was when Evan Roberts gathered in that little church building, I think, you know, according to my version or what I've read of history, about 17 uh, people gathered that night in a in a nation without revival, without light. And he said to the people after prayer, God has told me some things to say to you. First of all, he said, if revival comes or his presence comes, there we have to lay aside every questionable habit in our lives. What if God were to say that to you this morning? That there are some questionable habits in your life and that if you're going to know His presence and be able to sense His presence on a daily basis and please Him, that you're going to have to lay aside those questionable habits. He said, we have to, number two, God has said that we have to confess every known sin in our lives. 
You cannot carry around hidden sin. You cannot regard iniquity in your heart and expect for God to hear your prayers. Then he said, number three, we have to make things right with our neighbor. We have to think, make things right with our brother, with our families, with those that we are at odds with and those that we are in a, a, a confrontation with spiritually, if you will. And so it is said that the people, when they heard this, said we will do what God asked and humble themselves that night in prayer. And that before 24 hours was up, there were 10,000 Welshmen added to the kingdom of God. Within six months, over 100,000 were born again because 17 people humbled themselves and prayed and sought the face of the Almighty. First of all, we have, as we recognize or secondly, as we re recognize the need for that visitation, and again, how we cannot recognize that need, not only in our world, but also in the church. And once we recognize that, then the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, has to break up the fallow, the hard ground of our hearts. You say, preacher, my, my heart is not hard and there is no fallow ground in my heart, I can assure you, and I am not your judge, but I do know that he that knows all the hearts of men and women can find fallow ground in every single person in this building today. My old friend was in his church praying one Sunday afternoon in Jacksonville, Florida. He's in heaven now. And he said, I was praying, fasting that whole day, and said, the Lord... Uh, took me into a vision, and he said, I saw a great field, like a, like a field, a planting field, and it was hard-packed dirt. It was so dry and barren and cracked open from a lack of rain. And he said, way in the distance, I saw something moving slowly over that great hard-packed dirt field. And after the object I was witnessing moved over, passed over, he said the ground was freshly plowed and broken. And he said, Lord, what are you showing me? And he said, I'm showing you the Holy Ghost and what he's doing. He's breaking up the fallow ground, getting it ready for the rain. And I said, oh God, surely, surely the Holy Ghost, allow, let me allow him, let me open myself up to him to break up the fallow ground of my heart to get it ready for the rain because I do believe that the rain is coming. And then He, when that happens, God instills within us a supernatural hunger for Him. A supernatural hunger for His presence. You know, we don't just wake up one morning and, you know, as if we've got a uh, a, a decision, a decision to make, or this uh, hunger that we might have, you know, the whether to go to McDonald's for a, 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 you know, some type of sausage and and biscuit, or or whether we're going to go to Cracker Barrel. And, no, it's not a thing we just wake up with someday. This God has to instill this within our hearts. It is sovereign. It is a supernatural act 
from the Almighty. And once He puts that in our heart, I prayed again to Him some time ago. And I said, God, again, I've prayed it before. Give me a hunger for You like I have never known in all of my life. I've seen the days in the past year I got in, into that building project of the house first, in the office, in the film studio, and all of this. And I'm, I said, no way am I going to allow this to interfere with my seeking God. I'm going to take that time in the night and go and get up in the morning. Well, I tried to be faithful to that, but I found myself night after night and day after day, you know, there just sitting, trying to be with God. But my mind was on what needed to be built tomorrow, what materials I had to get, where I had to do, you know, all of these things. And I watched, I, I sensed myself over a period of time. I could tell that things were different. And I said to him some time ago, God help me. God, I want you to renew that in me again and restore that in my spirit again, that hunger for your presence and that desire for the things of God. Give me that hunger for that visitation. It will be a hunger that only the presence of God alone can satisfy and quench in our lives. King David, he knew about this. He's one of the most intriguing people outside of Jesus. He's one of the most intriguing persons in all of the Bible. What a man who failed so miserably and more than once, obviously. But yet he writes words like this in Psalm 42 and 1, As the heart panteth after the water brook. So panteth my soul after thee, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And he said in Psalm 63, 1 and 2, he said, O God, thou art my God, and early will I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is, to see thy glory and thy power in the sanctuary. I read stories about men like David Brainerd who died at somewhere around 29 years of age of tuberculosis. He was a missionary to the, the North American Indians or the, in the North, the Northeast, the Native Americans there. But what a, what a man of prayer. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of yesteryear and times past, experienced revival in his own life and ministry and churches of the day in the 1700s said, that one of the greatest, greatest gifts of God that he could ever have was that David Brainerd would die in his home and pass on to glory in his home. And Brainerd prayed so often. It said once, he said, I prayed so fervently that the snow literally melted under my feet as I stood in the woods in the snow. Other times he said, I prayed so one night that it felt like the breaking up of a cold winter as he sought the face of God. God, give us young people today with such fervency to have an experience with the presence of God. As the Sousa Street Revival began, these very factors or spiritual laws had been experienced in those who were a part of that movement, especially initially. William J. Seymour, the leader of the revival, was. A, he, this is what they, they said. He was a uh, he was a black brother, a black holiness preacher, is what they called him. 
And he was working as a waiter there in Los Angeles. He prayed, he said, five hours a day, and the Lord dealt with him. And he said that the Lord dealt with him to pray longer, and he was praying seven hours a day. Then you have Pastor Smell of a church in Los Angeles, and he he took a visit to Wales, and he came back with the news of the revival in Wales. Now, he did not bring back the revival. He did not bring back the presence of God. He didn't put it in his suitcase and bring it home. And that that has been something that aggra- really aggravates me in this day. When people go to these revivals, they so-called in places, and they say, we're going to bring this back to our church. You, you, you know, God, you don't put God in a box or in your purse, ladies, and bring Him back, or men in your, in your pocket and bring Him back. No, this comes as we lay in the presence of God. You don't have to go anywhere to seek God for revival. You come right here. Every prayer meeting, every service, and along with this body, you cry out to God and seek His face. He did not bring the revival back, but He brought back the news. And the people and people in Pastor Smell's church were so, they were so convicted and they began to recognize the absence of God's power in their midst and the need for revival in the, in LA, the city of the angels. So they began to pray. And then Frank Bartleman, the historian of that of that revival at Azusa Street, told of the hunger that began to grip the hearts of the people as well as his own. And he said, my life was by this time literally swallowed up in prayer. He said, I was praying day and night. He wrote that hunger and thirst for God, it will literally drive men to seek Him. But you know, if if men and women seek Him, if young people seek Him, they're going to find Him. Matthew 7 and 7, and he said in Matthew 11 and 12, from the, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. We cannot seek Him with half of our hearts. It, it cannot be a half-hearted effort. It has to be a total desire and everything within us. It cannot be for a certain amount of time that we put a date on it or a time period. And God, if you do not move, no. And we cannot be be divided about it. He said in Psalm 119 and 2, said, Blessed are they that seek Him with the whole heart. I was in Bowling Green, Florida for years. I preached a count meeting there with uh, Brother Bert Clendenin, and I was the morning speaker, and he was the night. One night, the man of God preached. My, I'm telling you, it so stirred me that I, I, I got out of my seat, and I went up into the, into the choir in one of the chairs, and I, I laid over one of those chairs and prayed for some time. The altars were full of people seeking the face of God. The pianist was playing and singing, and after a while, the, the altar service, it, it drew to a close, and I'll never forget, there was a message in tongues, and then the interpretation came. I, 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 this is what the interpretation was. I want you to seek me, but not with a divided heart. I want you to seek me, but not with a divided heart. You, you can't, you can't split it up, you know, you, it, the, the, you know, have a little, 
have a little bob of your shoes, you know, to some other city and miss three Sundays out of the month or never being able to come to prayer meeting. You got some event, you got some spectacle, you got something you got to be at, you got to do this, you got to do that. But God, I'll try to, no, no, you cannot have a divided heart in this. You cannot love something else equal to or more. It has to be God and a hunger for His presence. He said, that hurts, preacher. I know it does. I have grandchildren. But it's true. He said, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. You see, when that supernatural hunger comes, it will cause us to persist in prayer. Then God comes. And Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, and the results of that was, Lord, send me. You see, once you get in the presence of God, and once that changes your life, then it no, it's no longer about you. It's, of course, it has to be about Christ. That comes first. Everything is Christ. Everything is the presence of Christ. But then when that touches your life and you are in the presence of Christ, the change that comes in your heart is it's not a, you're, you're not selfish about your life anymore or your spiritual walk. Somebody else has got to know about this. There's something else that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So when He saw the glory of God and he, he, he was in the presence of God, He then saw the lostness of men and He became burdened for the lost. I know revival is for the church, but then the burden for the souls will become consuming in our, our lives. Jeremiah 9 and 1, oh, that mine head were waters and that mine eyes were a fountain of tears for the lost of my people. Frank Baldwin said, I fasted praying night, day and night before going to uh, the meeting in Pasadena and the Lord wonderfully anointed me in preaching. And he said, 20 souls came to the altar. He said, by this time, the spirit of intercession had so possessed me that I prayed he, pray, he said, I prayed continually and I fasted much also until my wife despaired of my life at times. He said, the sorrows of my Lord had gripped me. I was in the garden with Him. Uh, Evan Roberts said about the revival, the revival in Wales is not of men but of God. He has come very close to us. There's no question of creed or dogma in this movement. We're not teaching any sectarian doctrine, only the wonder and beauty of Christ's love. An English eyewitness writes of the revival in Wales and such, said such real travail for souls and for the unsaved I've never before witnessed. said, I've seen young Evan Roberts convulsed with grief and calling on his audience to pray. Don't sing, he said. It's too terrible to sing. Another writer declares, I, it was not the eloquence of Evan Roberts that broke men down, but his tears. And he would break down crying bitterly for God to bend them 
in an agony of prayer and tears running down his cheeks with his whole body, his whole frame, it said, writhing or writhing. Strong men would break down and cry like children and women would shriek and a sound of weeping and wailing would fall in the pulpit while many in the crowd fainted. God help us. What a, what a vast difference in our modern day uh, meetings and crusades in, in, in the United States of America when people are more struck and and move of the personality on the stage, and they come down the aisles chewing their, uh, we used to call it double bubble, and I, I mean, I'm dating myself, but chewing their double bubble and talking, coming down the aisle, and, and no tear, no, 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 no. That is not conviction. That was conviction in those times that were brought on by agonizing. In prayer. You see, prayer will turn the judgment of God. It will not change the course of, of uh, scriptural prophecy. It's going to happen. I don't care how much you pray. God's going to dr- judge this nation. He may stay the hand for a while if we pray and seek His face, but His wrath, the cup of His indignation is full. The Lord is going to come. Nothing's going to change that, folks. He's going to come in an appointed hour and time. Hell is going to be poured out and poured loose in this world. There's going to be vials of judgment that are, that are poured out upon this world. Nothing's going to change that, but prayer will stay at times. The judgment of God, it will spare the lost. When Abraham's nephew Lot, who was like his own brother, was down in Sodom and Gomorrah and with his daughters and his family. And the Bible said when the Lord told him, I'm going down, I've heard of the sin of Sodom, I'm going to go see if it's what I've heard is correct. He would not even take the word of angels. That's how just of a God that he is. I'm going to see for myself. But it said Abraham stood yet before the Lord. He got right up in the face of God and said, Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Be that far from thee. You know the rest of the story. He got it whittled down to ten righteous souls in Sodom and Gomorrah. You said, yes, but it burned, preacher. They were destroyed. That's true. But he did get out with two of his daughters. We may not save everybody, but we can save some if we will agonize with God. How long has it been since you've agonized over your prodigal son or your prodigal daughter? How long has it been since you've stayed up most of the night agonizing over that grandchild that's gone into perversion or that one that's in drugs or that one that has left and no one's heard from for months? How long has it been since we have agonized for a, a lost spouse, a lost husband, a lost wife? In prayer. You say, yes, but that was Abraham. Men, men and women of old, but all ages there have been those who have changed the world through prayer. Charles Finney said of John Livingston, the young Scottish preacher, he was about 25 years old and he'd been praying the whole night prior to his meeting, June 21st, 1630. He was to preach at a place in Scotland called the Kirk of Shots. And the next morning after he spent all night in prayer, he went out into the field again about 8 o'clock in the morning. 
And, and, and it said, and I, I just read it, an agony of fear came upon him. He was going to preach to a large crowd. Again, he's 25 years of age, but he's brilliant beyond words. He sought the face of God, but he said, I, I thought about just leaving the meeting and just walking away and leaving. But then he said, the overcoming power of the Spirit constrained me to preach as arranged, my text being Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26, and said after he'd been preaching for about an hour and a half, there was a little storm that came up, and the rain began to fall, and the dark clouds filled the sky, and the people began to run for shelter. And young Livingston cried out after them and said, Do you have any shelter from the storm of God's wrath that is coming? And went on and preached for another hour, and 500 people got saved. It was Finney that said that prayer... And his book prevailed at a place called Cambus Lane in the revivals of McCullough and Whitfield. And so many were crying out for mercy that Whitfield described it as a very field of battle. Whitfield preached to 20,000 people. And again on Monday when he said, you might have seen thousands bathed in tears. He said some at the same time were wringing their hands and others almost swooning. Now that's an old Old British word, I guess. I'm not even sure, but others were almost swooning. And, and he said they were crying out over a pierced Savior. And the question is, what brought such conviction? What brought such revolts? It is results. It is sad that on the voyage from London to Scotland that Whitfield spent most of his time on board the ship in secret prayer. And it was William Commerce Burns who was a contemporary of the great young preacher, Robert Mary McShaney, and he later became a missionary to China. But Burns said he was preaching from Psalm 110 and 3, and he said, I retold the story of the Kirk of Shots that day. He said, where Livingston preached, and he said, I felt in my own soul moved in a manner so remarkable that I was led my, like Mr. Livingston to plead with the unconverted and to instantly close with God's offer of mercy. He said the power of the Lord's Spirit became so mighty upon their souls as to carry all before it. He said some were like, were screaming out in agony. It was like the mighty wind of Pentecost and others among these strong men fell to the ground as if they were dead. And he said, I was obliged to sing a psalm and our songs, our voices being mingled with the mourning and groans of many prisoners sighing for deliverance. I've got news for you this morning. We live in a, we live in a generation likened unto that of Sodom and Gomorrah and likened to that of but yet we also live in a time when God has promised to bring a harvest in this hour. When you read that scripture said, you know, uh, about the coming of Jesus, about the coming of the husbandman, you know, and, and that he said he would come after the former and the latter rain. Well, the latter rain and a harvest of souls will be synonymous. It will be the same. So what will cause that to happen, preacher? It will not 
take this little twinkly eye preaching, you know, of this time and the little Bible stories of this generation, you know, they don't want anything out of order. They don't want anything prophetic. They don't want anything that upsets the old apple cart, if you will. It's going to take someone that has been in the presence of God in this hour that has lain there and sought his face and stands up and declares the word of the Lord. That's the only thing that's going to reach this so-called woke generation. They're sick of churches. They're sick of Christianity. And you can hardly blame them. Because this lukewarm Christianity, Jesus himself said it would make one vomit and sick in his stomach. It would take this kind of preaching, this kind of anointing, this kind of conviction. And in closing this morning, for many of you here, several of you here, Prayer, real travailing, intercessory prayer will be the only thing that stands between that boy of yours and hell. An intercessory prayer, this kind of prayer will be the only thing that stands between that, that prodigal daughter of yours and hell, that prodigal spouse, that prodigal grandchild. But I can assure you it will work. It's always worked. Ian Bounds wrote in his book, Purpose in Prayer, and this was at the testimony of one Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, and he said his friend was in Cincinnati preaching. He preached his sermon. Nobody responded, and he sat down up there on the stage and said the Lord dealt with him to make another appeal, and when he did, a young man in the back raised his hand. So he walked down off the stage to the back and said to the young man, he said, Tell me about yourself. And the boy said, well, I live in New York. I'm a prodigal. And he said, I have disgraced my father's name. And I've broken my mother's heart. And I, I ran away from home and told them that I would never come back until I became a Christian or they brought me home dead. That night they sent out a letter from Cincinnati to his father and mother that their prodigal boy had turned back to God. Seven days later, in a black-bordered envelope, a reply came which read, it was from the mother, My dear boy, when I got the news that you had received Christ, the sky was overcast, your father was dead. Then the letter went on to tell how the father had prayed for the prodigal boy with his last breath. And it concluded, You are a Christian tonight because your father would not let you go. Your father would not let you go. Finally, I'll never forget, Brother B.H. actually told me this. He said many, many decades ago, and I'm closing with this, many decades ago, there was a Son of God church somewhere in Texas about to have revival. The evangelist comes to town, usually on a Saturday evening. He comes to the, what back then they call him a parsonage, where the preacher lived in his family and said when the evangelist come with his little suitcase, he... Uh, 
preacher meets him, the pastor, and greets him and says, I'm glad you're here. We're going to have revival. But he said, you know, he said, I've got a, we've got a brother who lives out of town on a farm, Brother John. He, um, his wife died about a week ago, and he's really having a hard time. He's got two daughters. They're both backsliders away from God. I just wonder, would you mind staying with him during the revival? You could encourage him, talk with him, be there. He said, I don't mind at all. So he takes him out of town to the old farm. And he said, uh, when they got to the back door, the old brother John comes out of the farmhouse and greets the evangelist, takes his little suitcase from him, takes him in the house, into that old farmhouse bedroom, big bedroom usually, you know, had a bed over here and a bed over there. And he said, now preacher, that's my bed. Now that's your bed against the wall. Glad you're here. Make yourself at home. Well, the next night, or the next day, revival started. The next night came, and the evangelist gets in his little bed over there, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning early, and old brother John, he noticed he hadn't been to bed all night. His bed hadn't been touched. Nobody slept in it. He had thoughts, but he wasn't sure. I mean, he didn't know what, he didn't know what was going on, and so he, he didn't say anything. And that night, they go back to the service. They have a great move of God and come back to the farmhouse. They go to bed. The preacher did, and the next morning, same thing. The old brother John, he never had been to bed at all night, man. His bed hasn't been touched. By now, the evangelist is surmising a lot of stuff. He's all upset. He gets up and he walks into the kitchen. About that time, Brother John, the sun's coming up. He comes in the back door. Face all red, his eyes red. And the evangelist starts, man. He said, I'm going to tell you it's a shame. He said, here, your wife hadn't been dead a week. Now you're out here. I'm trying to have revival in this church. And you've been out carousing around all night, every night. You don't even go to bed. God only knows what you're doing out there. And old Brother John breaks down and begins to cry. He said, Preacher, come in here in the bedroom here and follow me. Let me show you something. He's crying. Evangelist follows him into the bedroom. He said, You see that bed you're sleeping in, Preacher? Yes, sir. That was my wife's bed. She died there a week ago. The preacher before she died... She called me over to her bedside and reached up and grabbed my hands with her hands. Looked me in the face and said, John, promise me you won't come to heaven without our girls. Promise me, John. He said, Preacher, I made a promise to her. And every night when you're in here in the bed sleeping... I've been out there all night long in that old barn in the loft and that hayloft praying all night for my girls. That night there was two of them in the barn praying all night. The next night, while the choir was singing, the glory was falling, two backslidden farm girls walked through that back door made their way down to that old-fashioned altar. 
and gave their hearts to God. When we pray, the heavens will open. 